Welcome to episode 27 of the Making Noise podcast. My name is Alan Kanaw, and I'm your host. Today's episode features the wonderful and incredibly upbeat Jared Tate. Jared is a composer and pianist, and he's a member of the Chickasaw tribe. Um, prior to having this conversation with Jared, we never actually had spoken before outside of corresponding through email and right away once the conversation gets started it was upbeat from the beginning and that that positive energy and attitude maintained throughout the entire hour and a half of this conversation and that is one of the things i wanted to point out because this is something that i really appreciate and admire about jared is that he's able to take whatever the context of the situation is and tease out any positive elements to walk away from so that when you when you do leave you feel like like you can accomplish whatever it is you're trying to do or or things that you were afraid to do um or or have some sort of perspective and realization that what you're going through although you might think is wrong or you're doing things incorrectly is actually okay so you know for example when we talk about the um process for composing music he explains how, as a composer, you go through cycles of composing. There's there's periods where you compose for a couple months, and then you might not compose for a short time, and that's okay. Um, we talk about embracing gratitude, how our great, great, great ancestors went through such turmoil so that we can experience the amenities that we have today, and how fortunate we are to have that. Um, he talks about his, his uh, Chickasaw identity, his identity as a Native American, and uh, we talk about the language, which is really interesting. Um, he talks about his family. His father is a, is a judge in both Native American and American law. His mother uh, is a choreographer and um, gave him his first commission to write a ballet. Uh, we talk about the superpower that each person has. That's a, that's a really fun conversation. Um, and, and there's just so much great, great advice and insight in this in this episode, I think you'll walk away with and feeling pretty uh, optimistic about things. Um, and uh, one final thing I want to mention is that uh, the podcast I've been since I've started it, it's been operated solely by me. The editing, the production, uh, corresponding with guests, preparing for the episodes and stuff. And so um, if you have the means and are able to and if you like what I do, uh, I ask that you consider donating to my PayPal, which will be linked below in the in the show description. Um, I do hope that at some point I will have enough uh, resources to outsource for someone to do the editing so that I can focus more on creating the content and quality and, and, and preparing more for each conversation. So uh, if you are able to, please consider donating. Other than that, um, I don't want to hold you any longer. So please enjoy this conversation with Jared Tate. Let's go make some noise. My name is Adam Kanaw, and I am a collaborative composer. Join me in the search for a career in classical music. This is the Making Noise podcast. So glad to have you on here, Jared. This is really exciting. <laughs> this is fun. I, I'm very grateful for, for the opportunity to talk about stuff. About b being a nerd in music, it's really fun to talk about, man. <laughs> oh, totally. Well, so, I mean, even seeing your setup right now, like you have two pianos to your, one to your left, one to your right. <laughs> you are you are ready to go. I love it. 
it's what I do. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I also have a Logitech camera and a Rode microphone, and I've got a laptop here. I mean, you know, this is what we do, man. I mean, this is this is my business, so I've got to be ready. <laughs> totally, yeah. No, I I have a so this is a grand I've had since I was ten years old mm-hmm. that my mom bought for me. Um, it was, it, and we, I, we had agreed that it was my last Christmas present. And I was like, told, I said, this could be my last present for life, but that's, that's my Baldwin baby grand that I've had since I was a kid. And, um, I mean, it's just, it was one of the most beautiful gifts I could ever have. And then this is just one of my recent road uh, electric keyboards is a USB and it's a great sound. It's actually, I can take it on gigs really well. Any more of these lightweight 88 key weighted they they feel good to play and they're just super useful. They and this built-in speakers they actually fill a room. They sound really good. So we're we're in a really nice time with music technology like this. And so you know it's just part of part of what the gig bag. You know. Yeah, yeah, totally. What a cool what a cool gift too. I mean, the fact that how how old were you when when that uh, when your mom got you the grand piano? I was I was ten years old. I had been playing the piano for two years, and uh-huh. um, it w- and I I had announced to my parents uh, three months into my piano lessons that I was to be a concert pianist. I was in like Flynn, and so um, I was studying and and you know I'd be talking to my parents and just other musicians, and it was I, I had a, we had an upright spinet uh, from the family on my mom's side, and it was clear I needed a piano, so we went and, and shopped around and and uh, traded that one in and, and got this this Baldwin. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, it's I've had. I mean, these are lifetime things. I mean, it's my it's my piano. <laughs> I love it. You know, and this thing has been all over the country with me. So wow. So so you you've moved from from house to house and location to location and, and brought that. You know, every step of the way. That's amazing. Pretty much, yeah. It, yeah, it's. I mean, that's what you know. There's a there's a film I believe about Wagner a long time ago, mm-hmm. and it showed Wagner moving. You know, from, I mean, because he was, there was war going on all the time in Europe. And so people moved, actually. They relocated quite often because of political upstir, you know. And so uh, here he was crossing the Alps with a piano on these skis, you know, on moving skis. You took your piano with you back, I mean, you know, 200 years ago. (laughs) I have never thought about that. That is a crazy Holy, oh my it's God. It's a neat scene. I still remember it. Oh my gosh, there we go. Yeah, just moving pianos. <laughs> yeah. Well, especially at that time. I mean, like, what, there there may have been the locomotive, but not over the Alps. No, not really. No, actually, I, I think this is like pre, yeah, I mean, I I, I don't know my my industrial revolution history and everything, but but no, I mean, you know, you didn't have a train everywhere and it didn't go everywhere. And so if you and depending on like, literally, like how you had to move it incognito, possibly or whatever, it's, it's almost like the Von Trops, you know, how they just, they just go over a mountain, you know, out of the out, off the radar of anybody, that kind of thing. And so here's Wagner with his piano, like zoom, <laughs> he's going. I don't, I don't remember exactly where he was going, but I'll never forget that. Going thinking, you know, back back in the day, that, and it was on skis to get through the snow. It was on a ski thing, and you just with a horse, and just it was a horse is pulling a piano. But it's actually once you got it on skis, it's pretty easy to do. That's what they do now. They've got you know little skateboards for the piano, so the piano goes on its side and you take the legs off and so it's thin it can go through doorways and everything and there's a little like skateboard type thing uh, and it's actually not very difficult to move mm. yeah. i i used to work at a a music store or it was a you know I, I taught guitar and piano there but it was also a piano shop oh. and um 
and yeah, we like we would have the guys come in all the time to to take out a piano whenever someone bought bought one, and every time they did it, I was you know it always made me uncomfortable watching, um, just knowing like you know the how important this instrument is yeah, <laughs> but yeah. like yeah like they they would take the legs off lay it on the side they'd wrap it in like the the blanket or whatever whatever you know that that yeah. padded moving you know um mm-hmm. and i i don't know if i have that uh in me to to like like that the capacity to be like let me move this really valuable thing for you i got it like <laughs> <laughs> you, you just got to do it i mean of course now now that they've got you know um cast iron frames on the inside i mean they're pretty durable they, mm. they move quite well um anymore back in the day you know during the time that you know historically i mean pianos weren't as strong so you, they could break a little easier i would say in those moves you know but you just got to go slow right but right it's, it's pretty standard to do that now i mean it's not something you would do all the time but i mean just out of necessity i've got to bring my piano with me you know where, where i live so that's just what happens and fortunately you know a lot of movers are, are very in tune with knowing how to move pianos as well but generally in any you know any you know mid-sized city at least you've got a piano mover it happens it's like very common mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, yep <laughs> well yeah i mean that that's you know you you hope that there's someone who's very good at it, you know, or like, like instrument repair and stuff. Like, yeah, yeah. uh, I'm, I'm a guitarist and I can, I can, you know, I can do like very minor things with repairing my guitar, but nothing. I, I play the instrument. I don't, I don't, you know, <laughs> I don't fix it. Um, well, I have repaired my piano before. There was a hammer that broke one time and it went ahead and, and replaced that at one point. Cause you can pull the keyboard out and there's, there's uh, screws that just hold it in. And so you just slide it out and it's really quite easy to pull out and, and manage and so i've done a little bit of repair but i i don't tune my piano and i was actually advised do not become a piano tuner because uh, if you're a performer because um it'll drive you crazy where right. you go so as a pianist i mean part of part of the one one thing about pianists is that you have to be able to kind of turn your ears off in some ways so that you can play any piano that's available and not let it disturb you at all. You not like not get picky about it. Just like, mm-hmm. hey, that's the way it is, and that's cool. I'll just make it sound as beautiful as I can, you know, with with my playing. And so, but it, it, <laughs> I think that was some pretty good advice. It was from another tuner going, mm, yeah, you know, not unless you've really become like a professional tuner. You should just let somebody else tune it, and you just play it. Otherwise, it's going to drive you crazy. I think that was some pretty good advice, you know. So yeah. because I mean, pianos can be crazy out of tune and it's hard enough already so but if you can kind of turn off that criticism then it's a lot easier just to go ahead and play beautifully (laughs) that's it that's my job to play beautifully (laughs) exactly yeah you don't that's where you sort of delegate to the guy who does it for you and um i know what you mean by the whole you know or what that guy was saying about don't become a piano tuner because like i'm sure you experience this when you watch a movie about a musician and when you see the actor acting like they're playing it's it's hard <laughs> it isn't how frustrating is that well it's, you know it's like any movie like with surgeons or lawyers anybody in that profession is just like oh right right <laughs> you, know, but, you know it's like when dr strange is a surgeon and they do all this stuff and he takes the bullet out of the guy's head you can imagine surgeons are like yeah yeah right <laughs> or maybe they're like oh wow that's actually you never know you saw, Sometimes it, it, it works out pretty well, but by and large, when you watch movie conductors and pianists, they're they're nowhere near. <laughs> it's Not really at all. Bad. <laughs> Not at all. There's um there's one movie I watched by the Cohen brothers called uh, Inside Lewin Davis, mm-hmm. and it stars Oscar Isaac. <clears throat> and Oscar Isaac legitimately can can play the guitar, and in the yep. movie 
he plays the guitar too and he's actually singing so it's like that's one where i'm like oh that's it, like the authenticity is really there you know? yeah that's great that's awesome good for them for being able to achieve that yeah yeah that's awesome i, I kind of wonder with people who do you do you have like perfect pitch or anything like that no i always wondered about people with perfect pitch if microtonality was more of an issue or something that was like they can identify easier you know mm -hmm. my experience in talking to people with absolute pitch is is uh, i mean it's a mixed bag basically mm -hmm. and they're aware that they have it so they, they you know actually they have to do very much a similar thing that i'm talking about with turning off my ears on the piano and so when they're managing their lives in music they kind of have to turn off that sensitivity as well Otherwise, they can go down rabbit holes, you know, themselves. So it's almost like, you know, and I think people do that in all kinds of aspects of life. Sometimes you have to kind of tune out a certain sensitivity that you may have to something, you know. And so I, I, my experience in talking to people with absolute pitch, they, they kind of they manage that themselves because it's like I remember uh, uh, Richard Keitel, a pianist friend of mine, was saying is like, yeah, if I hear a commode go off, it's oh, that's a G natural, you know, like he'll, you know, he actually identifies pitch with everything. And, he had to be like, I just got to shut it out. I got to put blinders on base. It's almost like oral blinders that you put on. Wow. Depending on your circumstance, you're just going to have to do that for yourself to, 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 to help yourself through the circumstance. <laughs> right. Yeah. That... But I, I do not have pitch. In fact, I've got a really wonky style of pitch that I've had to reconcile <laughs> myself. And it's just the way it is. I think everybody has a slightly different perception of pitch, which makes us all uniquely human. I mean, everybody has a slightly different perception of everything. And pitch is one of those. And so um, in talking to other people and their pitch perceptions and how they deal, I'm like, oh my gosh, mine is mine works like this. But I know what they're talking about. I have, a, I have enough reference. I mean, I know, and I could put myself in somebody else's shoes, but I think everybody has just a little bit different sensitivity and interpretation of pitch or vision. Mm or touch or smell, taste, all kinds of things. I think we're a little variable. And if, even if we were transported into each other's bodies, we'd be like, oh, your red looks a little different than my red. Interesting. You know, I'm sure that, that, that that's, that's real. That's a really interesting point. And it makes so much sense. I, I, yeah, I mean, I wonder too, like as a, cause you started as a pianist and well, you're still a pianist, right? And um, oh, yeah. how, how does that like when you're composing and stuff? Do you compose at the piano or do you yes. have to disconnect yourself? Um, I well, I okay, I do both. I mean, I spend a lot of time on the keyboard because I just have a natural organic inclination to be on the keyboard. The piano is really a, a condensed symphonic instrument, basically. Mm. And so I am able to get into the aesthetic and the ethos of what I'm doing by playing it. So I'm emoting, I'm feeling, I'm, I'm being a performer. And I think that's really, really critical for all composers is to feel like they're performing their own works. So kind of, and, and, so, and that translates into like, even though I'm not an oboist, I'm still an instrumentalist. I know what, it, know what it's like to play you know, the music, to execute it. So they, it transfers really in a very real way. It really, really does. So as I'm playing... I'm like, yeah, that's what I want. But if, but if not, and I will, you know, and I will play it as if I'm performing it. Does that timing feel right? Oh, that should be a little faster. If I was you know, performing you know, or at the premiere, I imagine, is that too slow? So I use the instrument constantly. I mean, I'm a pianist composer basically. And so, uh, and, and, and so, but then other times I will remove myself. I'll go to Panera, Panera and like sit down and I actually like all the noise because it creates like this noise block in a sense it's like all the static becomes like a shelter and it makes me focus and sometimes i will need to get off the keyboard and go conceptualize 
because it can be limiting. It's like you get stuck in your own keyboard sound. Then I'll need to go, okay, I need to go brainstorm somewhere else. And so I will pick other places to do that. Generally not in my own studio. Like I will, I will purposely remove myself for, for a different perspective. So I have a combination of circumstances like that. Some, I remember in, in graduate school, I did challenge myself on a particular piece that I went and wrote it almost entirely off the keyboard, just as a personal challenge. And it, I really enjoyed that. Um, and I found I could, and it was, I was fine. And so now I just kind of do whatever I need to. Was, I, I, can't, I think I was just trying to, I was exploring that to see how I felt about it. And it felt really good. It was a really good experience. So, it, you know, different composers do it a little differently. I'm just a pianist and I like to be on the piano. Mm, right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's what I was kind of wondering too when talking about pitch and your perception of it. Um, I, I assume most of us as composers, we our relationship to the harmonic worlds that we are able to concoct most likely stems from the instruments that we play. Yes. Um, and so I was kind of curious about how, because you had mentioned that your understanding of pitch is, you know, how, how you kind of process it or think about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, had, I imagined it would be within the world of the piano. Yeah. It, it yeah, makes I mean, me very, wonder. Very much. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it's like, you know, over time, I mean, it's like, you know, I grew up also around vocalists and other instrumentalists. I played, I was a trumpet player for 10 years. And so I'm not unfamiliar with all that. But I, I think that basically as, you know, I, the more you're around other musicians, also that has a totally significant absorption factor. I mean, you know, that completely informs you and expands your ability to think like them. Just being around them, you just, yeah. just organically, it, it just seeps in to your bones. It really does. And that's real. And that's the way it is with anything, any art or dance, film, anything that you're doing. If you're an engineer, being around them, it's like, oh, it absorbs. Just being around it, it, it absorbs and becomes part of your 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 internal canon and and very real, you know. Sure. Oh, I like that. I like that. The, the internal canon. Yeah. <laughs> How you kind of like you're cultivating this, this uh, you know, um, what do you call that? Like artistic image in a way through all of that. Yeah, yeah, just being around it absorbs. It's just like parenting. You're around other parents. It, you pick up all kinds of great parenting skills. Oh yeah, <laughs> and, and things you don't agree with also as well. It's the same thing in, in anything. I and I mean maybe maybe I'm speaking much more for myself, but I my observation is that when we're around it, you know, we absorb. I mean we're we're humans in a physical world, and we we live on experience. And so when you're experiencing things, I mean it's very meaningful. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that those... irreplaceable even. Irreplaceable. <laughs> it is. You're right. Yeah, I mean because the socialization, uh the it, it, this is so funny that we're having this conversation cuz our mutual friend Garrett Hope who who recommended I I, I contact you for the con- uh the, the podcast. Mm-hmm. We had a similar conversation about, you know, um well in that one we were talking sort of like what was it exactly? Um the importance for children to have like um uh what was it Un- unstructured and unsupervised free play yeah where, where they can go off on their own without an adult supervisor there because there's certain like socialization uh aspects of being an adult that you learn as a child when there isn't an adult there right, right. or something like that and so this is making me think about that conversation with Garrett. <laughs> I, I love Garrett. He's he's so universal and holistic in his thinking. And I really enjoy talking to him about that, about like all kinds of things because of his general approach. And, you know, that's the same thing. We, look, we do this as adults. We're just, we're just, a, 
you know, hopefully more formed versions of uh, like advanced versions of children. Actually, as adults, we're constantly spitballing. Oh, constantly. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, look, raising children, you're you're spitballing. And so when you allow them to do what you're doing, you know, I mean, in a way that's not, you know, not too dangerous or anything, you know, then then that's really, really critical because you're teaching them how to be an adult improvising, <sighs> you know, when the stakes are even higher. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I have to say, Jared, a lot of the time I still feel like I'm 14 years old, so it Dude. doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's like I say, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm emotionally still, you know, 17. That's, I, you know, and I look in the mirror and I'm like, well, because I still see myself as like this kid who just doesn't really know what he's doing. Right. And then I look in the mirror, I'm like, am I'm, oh, that doesn't match how I see him. It's like, okay. <laughs> That. There's a huge disconnect there, but I mean, I don't think that's necessarily bad. I think it's, I think it's okay to keep a youthful stance on things like that. But the, the fact is, is that, I mean, we, we're just always in different stages of, of development and learning, mm. so, you know, so as, as adults, I, and I think it's good to stay humble like that because then we, we, we know that we're not always right. And it's always going to be open. I, I think, you know, that, okay, maybe I think I got this and yeah, my, my moral compass is definitely sending me this way. But hey, I got some ears. I can listen to what other people are saying or just what's going on around me. And so hopefully we can teach our kids to do the same thing. But they've got to experiment. And they got to mess up too. It's yeah. just got to happen. You know, I'm, I'm at a stage right now where I tell my son, son, you must make mistakes. It's imperative. You yeah. have to, you know, otherwise you're not going to really understand the difference. And it's, you've got to make these mistakes. He's like, okay. I'm like, seriously, I support you totally messing this up. It's okay. Right, right. Totally fine, you know. And right now, especially here in a safe place, like I mean, just all that kind of stuff, you know, because he's got bigger mistakes coming. That's a very good point. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, gotta embrace it. Yeah, yeah. So start, start young. Get ready for the uh, the mishaps that happen along the way, because <laughs> it's inevitable. Yeah, yes, sir. <laughs> That's I can fact. certainly riddle off many of the dumb things I've done in my life. <laughs> Yeah, you were all laughing now. It's like at the time, very stressful. Oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, undoubtedly. Um, and that's a, that's sort of an interesting thing too, like with composing, right? Because like we our our natural habitat is like to retreat in a way. Mm -hmm. I don't want to say our natural habitat, but like our inclination for uh, solving problems is to kind of step into a room mm -hmm. and like you know let me figure this out. And that there's a huge antisocial aspect to that. Um, but I like what you said earlier with your composing process where you, you sometimes have to step outside of that area to help conceptualize whatever it is you're working on. Mm -hmm. Is there, is there like, do you have an actual routine with composing where you say, okay, at this point in the composing process, I, I, I know I have to step away. Or is it like you feel it out? I'm stuck here. Let me go to Panera. I, I, I love, I love your, your beautiful fantasy of having a routine. I, I applaud you for having that, <laughs> that wish. <laughs> I'm well, laughing well, in agreement, Jared. <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you, you know, here, here, I think, I think one thing that um, we learn as we get older is that it's important to have a goal and to be okay when it's constantly, constantly challenged and broken. Mm. And so, so let me put it this way. There are times when I have to really, really solidify a routine and it, it cannot be compromised. And there are times that it can. And so it does get compromised. So, um, it, it's, it's really, it really depends on the circumstance and life is very fluid. And we had, and like the last two years has been a great ex example of, of living life on life's terms. That's a fact. 
And so, uh, so, but, but, so it's important that we have a structure that we know is not always going to work and be okay with that, but still constantly grab, you know, hold on to the structure. You know what I mean? You can't let it go. So it's kind of a funky little uh, coexistence that we have with, with all of that. But that, I mean, that keeps us on track. I mean, so like deadlines, for, for instance, are really critical to me because, man, it, it puts on the heat where it's supposed to be put on. And when I got to buckle down, it's got to happen. So in, in my, my life of a composer, there is the creative side and there's the management side. Mm-hmm. Those are two very, very strong and very real and equally important aspects of life. And I don't always have the perfect balance nor solution to it on a daily basis necessarily. And so uh, because you get an email that goes, oh, God, I got to go in that direction. Or you get them, you're like, nope, I'm shutting them out. It's like, you know, or, or I won't check my emails until two every day after mm-hmm. for a while. Or sometimes, you know what, this morning I get, I get up at four and just hammer emails for four solid hours so that by the time it's eight o'clock in the morning, I can actually, you know what I mean? It's like, sometimes we got to do that and make those decisions and hopefully go to bed with that decision made before the next day so you can sleep. Right. So, so it's really, it is fluid and we do live life on life's terms um, with, with the idea of, of trying to maintain some type of structure. So like right now, I just moved to a new place. So this is my new studio. I just got this in place two days ago. Yesterday was my first day back to work. And I had to get on the computer and just really just hammer out a lot of stuff. And honestly, I got to, I had, I had to work on Christmas, <laughs> right? You know, just stuff like that. And 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 so uh, and then today I've got I've got some meetings like this one, and, and so I just had to go ahead. So I've got to be like, all right, okay, that's you know, I do need to get back in composing, but it may not start until next Monday. Actually, I may go ahead and be like, all right, one more week. I got to surrender to just get anything to try because then I can comfortably set it aside and, and, you know, limit those hours while I'm getting geared back into doing four hours every morning of writing, mm. you know? So that, I mean, I know that was a little bit of a deep dive into to that, but that's, that's kind of how life works for me. And I've, I've found a, it works that way with a lot of artists, you know, there's, there's a whole, there's a, there's advice that's given sometimes by teachers like, well, you must compose every single day of your life, no matter what. And uh, I used to feel very guilty about that because I would do blitzkrieg. I'd compose like mad for six months and just create this enormous piece. And then I'd have to slingshot back. And it wasn't until I started hearing other composers say, yeah, um, it's like three months at a time, three months of writing and then three months of business. I've, I've heard that. And I was like, mm. oh, I'm so glad I heard that. It just made me feel like I was in company and more permission to be like, okay, yeah, all right, all right. This, so what I'm doing is not unusual. But also this applies to many, many folks in, in many aspects of life where people are juggling uh, that balance and and it's never totally perfect. You know, they, they got to hold on to the dream and then know it's going to flex. It's just, you know, so, and again, that's parenting, boy, in a nutshell. Because <laughs> you, you do want your, again, you want your compass in place, you know, you know your feelings, you know your truths about that. And at the same time, your <laughs> your kids are who they are. And it's like and they they develop at different rates and different ways and different aspects come up on a, on an hourly basis. And so to be able to hold a compass and flex at the same time is really important. There's so much that you're speaking to right now. And it's definitely like um like you said, the fluidity of life and you uh, you know Perfect, perfect comparison there to parenting at the end. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, like, and, and even like you said, the the composing cycle throughout the year of yep. like, you know, because sometimes composing doesn't necessarily mean um, uh, 
manifesting ideas and then writing on paper. Sometimes it's like editing or engraving or like, yes, you know, so, and, and during those times, it's like, that's a little bit of like, uh, I don't know. Um, it's not bad. Yeah. It's not bad. It's, it's part, it's part of the process because you are evaluating in a different way. Mm -hmm. You see, so you are, I mean, there's still critical analysis and, and critical thinking going on. Because I mean, like, what, like my, when I set my score down and I'm getting into Finale or Dorico or whatever, and I'm putting it in, I'm proofing and I'm re, I'm reanalyzing, I'm reevaluating what I've written, and and sometimes I'll be like, hmm, wait a minute, and then I think, take a break for an hour, get back on the keyboard with this this part of your music, go over it, and let's just take the time right now, make sure you're cool, and then get back, and I'll do that, mm -hmm. and that's because I was sitting down you know, in the weeds with my own music, putting it on onto different instrumental lines. And I mean, as I'm putting every line in, I'm imagining being that player. So it's another level of making it organic. It's making a part of my, my bones, my, my skeleton, you know? And so that's, that's partially why, you know, I don't, uh, I don't have other people do uh, my copy work is because I'm actually, I actually just need to be in tune yet again on another mm -hmm. level with my own music validating or invalidating what I'm doing re you know, whatever it is, the, the evaluation process is really, really critical. And eventually I'm going to have to proof it anyway. So it's like, well, I may as well just be in it, you know, 100% and make all those decisions that are going to have to be made no matter what I can't, you know, I can't avoid that. And I don't necessarily want to avoid that. It's got to have that second take, you know, on it. So it's all part, it, I, I, I see value in all of that. It's not necessarily what I prefer all the time because sometimes I just want to be free and compose, you know, but, um, <laughs> at the same time, at the end of the day, the, the work is stronger uh, at, at, with every layer of involvement that I'm in on that work. Right. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's, that's key. I mean, I think throughout the process, being still being in it, you know, cause like there's, there's like a level of, um, I don't want it's not passion, but like in the early couple stages of writing a piece, at least I, I've realized for myself, it's like the, the amount of things I'm thinking about in a given, in a single session while I'm composing is like, it can, it can, it can go across the board. Yep. Like, like thinking about the actual material itself, like the literal pitches or like the concept I'm trying to go off of, or like, you know, and then at later stages, it's like that some of those things are, like you said before, uh, things that you invalidate or might throw away. Mm -hmm. It's like some of those things aren't even there anymore. Right. But, um, but you're still trying, you're, you're keeping that like, you know, groundedness, like connection to it and everything. Yep. I like what you said about that too, about why you don't have a copyist. Mm -hmm. was that sort of something that you like came into or, or is it just your natural, like, Oh, I just, I do it. Well, uh, it's, I mean, it was more practical at the beginning because, um, you know, engravers are expensive. I mean, mm -hmm. I'd be charging the same as, because that's a lot of work and I've had two scores, um, that, uh, one, well, I, I would, yeah, you know, base, I've had two scores, um, engraved by somebody else. And I mean, they did phenomenal work and I'm very, very grateful for that. But, and I'm also grateful that I learned that I'm going to now continue to do my own engraving. I really, I, need, I needed to know what that felt like to have somebody else do it and then proof it um, myself and then, then decide, okay, what's going to work better for me. And that's just me. Some people, you know, are, you know, it's just, it depends on the person really honestly. And so um, I just can't, I keep coming back to, yeah, I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to do it here. 
and, and that's fine, you know, so I've learned that in that circumstance. So in, the, in, in those two circumstances, um, I had the, the capital to do it. And so I, I found out, you know, where I stand on that personally. Right. Okay. Mm -hmm. But yeah. it, it took a while for me to be able to have the capital to do that. That's, I mean, that's, that's not necessarily real. That's not re very realistic for a lot of folks actually. Mm -hmm. And that's, this. that's just the way that is, you know, I, I, I can definitely say that I'm the type of person who, when I, when I do have the capital, I will hire an assistant because oh, I'm like, I, I need someone who will help me take care of all the other things I need to do, yeah. you know, while I'm still trying to take care of the stuff that I, I'm trying to, you know, on my own. Um, and I know there are composers who hire assistants for different reasons, you know, like whether it's emails or, right. you know, right. scheduling, whatever, or like, yeah, like a copyist in a way, like, hmm you know, hiring someone who's in college or something. But yeah, um, yeah that, that makes a lot of sense, though. It makes me kind of curious with you. We were talking a moment ago about the cycles of composing, right? Mm -hmm. There's periods where you write for several months, then you step away, and then you come back. Mm -hmm. um, when you approach the blank page again, after that period of, you know, removal, what, what are your feelings and thoughts, and particularly in connection to the opera? Mm -hmm. like oh, the abject terror. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's it. Full stop. <laughs> I think I think what you, your response is going to resonate with every composer. <laughs> I think everyone's going to be like, I'm not alone. <laughs> Man, it's it's just yeah. Uh, I mean, every every new project. I mean, it's like you know, building a new car from scratch. You're like, okay, mm. I think I remember doing the seats. Do I? <laughs> <laughs> it's really funny. I I, I again, it's because I mean, we're experts in our own field, and so we forget what we know. We're just, we're just we're just so into it that it's hard to have some perspective. And that can interfere with your confidence at certain points. But starting a new project, there's there's different aspects to it. The the conceptual part to me is always very exciting. And then when it comes down to getting into it, that's when my okay, can I you know that's that's almost almost an imposter syndrome comes in. Like, did I write all these pieces? Am I? I mean, it's like, what was was it this difficult the last time? And the answer is yes, it absolutely was. You know, so there are aspects that are you know, really wonderful and yay. And other they're like, ah, very scary at the same time. I, it's just, I think that's part of any process. I think any software engineer goes to the same thing. Did I, did I code that? Did I actually code that? When, right. when did I do that? I don't remember coding this particular, every composer does that. I mean, I look at scores. I'm like, Oh, right. I forgot about this scene. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I totally forgot about that. I mean, that happens, you know, and, um, and, and I think anybody that's creating, doing anything, it, you know, it's, it's hard to remember all that to keep track of it. So, but that, that's, I don't think that's necessarily bad things. It means, it means you're really involved. It means you're mm -hmm. really busy in your mind. And I think that's a really, that's okay. So getting myself back, you know, there's certain things I'll get myself back in tune with myself and like what I'm doing and, and all that kind of, and I will actually thumb through some of my old manuscript. Like I have manuscript books that I, that I keep. So like this guy right here. So 
I have like I just print out my own manuscript paper and I bind it. And so I've got like, you know, a whole bunch of these and I will go through them and go like, okay, I'm just, you know, just to spark my own creativity in my own, you know, ethos, basically. And by um, the kind of redoing that, and so I'll go through and I'll, and I'll also remember, oh, that's right. I was going to use that. And I didn't in this particular piece. Ah, oh, you know what? Actually, that might work in this. So I, I kind of do, I will do review of my own work sometimes to be like, you eh, know, just to kind of remind myself of some certain things that, you know, I wanted to be reminded of. So, you know, I'll, I'll do that as well. But restarting a new piece is always a little difficult. So like with the opera, it actually has been an interruption because um, we actually decided to postpone the premiere and we all had to take a pause from it. So now I'm just about to get back into it. And it's, and so, and I'm a little nervous because there are certain things I'm going to look at the page going, what was I doing? You know, and, but right. then I have to be like, just breathe, Jared. It's, you're going to, it's going to get, you know, you, it'll come back. And I have to trust that a lot. Um, but that's just a part of accepting life, living life in life's terms. Like, okay, that had to happen. That's totally cool. Nothing's going to be destroyed. You're still the same person who's going to create whatever it is. And that's fine, you know? Um, and so don't get too, you know, caught up in yourself about like, oh, but it's not going to be exactly the way it was necessarily if I had conceived of this three months ago. That's just, that's just normal. You just got to mm -hmm. kind of live with that. So, so um, I guess it's just kind of more to that, just being fluid with it, you know. Um, so if you don't want, I'll, I'll tell you about this opera if that's okay. Please, I'd love to hear about it. Okay, so just re really quickly, actually, just because people are listening, um, I I haven't really explained who I am. Yeah, <laughs> what we, I do, <laughs> where I'm coming from. We just started talking about music, which is fine. That's really cool. But um, but um, I am I am Chickasaw Indian from Oklahoma. I was born here in Norman, and uh, my my background is this. My father is Chickasaw Indian from Ardmore, um, and he lives in inside the Chickasaw Nation boundaries. I live in Oklahoma City, which is just a little north of the Chickasaw boundaries. And um, my father professionally uh, was a lawyer and a judge. And so he was a, a tribal judge and a special district judge. And um, also he's just worked in Indian law his entire life. And in fact, my dad is author to our current Chickasaw constitution. Um, all American Indian tribes, we all have our own constitution that works in tandem with the United States Constitution, which means we have two citizenships. We are citizens of our own tribe and the United States of America. So I am Chickasaw and American. Mm -hmm. And so um, anyway, my dad um, is author to that constitution that my tribe lives under right now. And um, so he's a very important historical figure um, tribally. And so also dad is a classically trained pianist and baritone. So I grew up with my Chickasaw father playing and singing classical repertoire in the house just regularly. And he was, he's been in theater. I mean, he still performs for his church. He still cantors for his church. He's 82 now and he's still very involved and he's been involved in theater his entire life. My mother, um, Patricia, was Manx, Manx Irish, um, from the Isle of Man is where her people came from. And she, she was born in Nebraska. My parents met in Oklahoma, and my mother was a professional choreographer and dancer. So I, between my two parents, I grew up in an enormous amount of theater. So I called myself a theater brat. I grew up in rehearsals. And when I say theater, I was exposed to an enormous amount of basically American theater. And we're talking, I was... My my experience in American theater was like turn of the century theater last year all the way through twenty the twentieth century, and so um, my big heroes growing up were choreographers actually like Martha Graham and Isadora Duncan and Ruth St. Denis and um, 
Ted, uh, Ted Sean, uh, and then we go into Jerome Robbins and Bob Fosse and Alvin Ailey, you know, that kind of thing. So I grew up with a lot of dance world. And so it was also, it was also traditional ballet. So I grew up with scores like with Tchaikovsky and Stravinsky and Prokofiev in the ballet world. I was saturated with that. So you can imagine, I mean, symphonically, I was completely immersed in some, in the best symphonic writing ever in history was in these ballets. I mean, I just say that, you know, without, without hesitation. And so, but also these were American pioneers in, in the arts. And so I, I feel really great about what I grew up with because at the same time, American Indians were creating our genre of fine art in all the visual arts, uh, authorship, choreography, film. Now film is a more current thing, but American Indians and Americans were creating genres of fine art at the exact same time. And by now, we, we actually have both very strong genres. So people come from all over the world to go to the Santa Fe Indian market now to buy American Indian artwork because it's world famous as a genre, modern American Indian arts, you know, and it's like there's experts on all the phases and who's gone through what and where they borrow from. And, and all of them are very aware of all the European greats and stuff like I mean, this. This is world knowledge, you know, that, that our American Indian artists have. Um, and so the same thing with uh, American pioneers, like, you know, George Crumb is another great pioneer, Sam Barber. I mean, these, these American composers were quite intense and, and quite innovative, you know, as Americans. And so I love how I grew up as an artist and what I was saturated in. Between my two parents, man, I got a tremendous amount of exposure to so much. And with my dad, because we live in Oklahoma, we live in a in a, a ter in Indian territory which has 39 federally recognized tribes. So I grew up as an American Indian, very cosmopolitan within Indian country. So I know a lot of American Indian styles of music and law. I mean, I'm like I just grew up in Indian law, and so it's like uh, just the, my sense of Indian country. The, what I was given by my father was really quite a gift, and so I feel a lot you know as both an american and an american indian and what's happened historically and artistically with both of those groups uh, it's i just really feel very fortunate to be exposed to what i was exposed to it also creates i mean i look back and i'm just i get excited i love what i know it's really cool to know these things and to be inspired by all this and to always look towards the future and that's that's you know that's a cool feeling i like being a modern american indian composer i just really love this that's so awesome to hear. I mean, your 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 uh, background and like it, it sounds like from day one, your your world was music and 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 theater, and theater right? And and you said um, your father was a, is a judge for uh, an Indian law, right? Or well, yeah, he was a tribal judge. Tribal still, judge. actually, for the Kickapoos, I believe he's still working for them. But he was a tribal judge for uh, tribes around the country, uh -huh. and and also my dad's my this this means a lot to a lot of other natives. But my dad was involved in the Pueblo uh, water rights issues in the 1970s. He was cutting his teeth in, the, in law, and that's a big deal. Water rights is always a big deal, especially in the desert, right. especially in Indian country. So he was that was where he cut a lot of his lawyer teeth, and it was a great. And less than he did, and then he moved back to Oklahoma and started becoming involved in the Choctaw Chickasaw Alliance here, and just I mean was like really involved in the re-ratification of our constitution and, and reauthoring that you know for our future. It was just amazing how how steeped my dad was 
in the history of the 60s and 70s in Indian country, how that was evolved. There's a lot going on. It was a really dynamic time. And so, and we are, our, our younger native youth, and me and younger, I say younger, I'm not that young, but we all benefit from the work that a lot of those folks were doing back in the 60s and 70s. It was a really, really robust and dynamic and colorful time. It was really cool. So yeah, yeah, so I'm just, I'm really grateful for that. So this opera that I'm doing, uh, Shell Shaker, well, one of, okay, so I, I, I was a piano major at Northwestern and I graduated in piano and then I went to Cleveland, the Cleveland Institute as a piano major. My mom changed my life by commissioning a new ballet score from me. She was doing new ballets and she wanted to do a ballet based on American Indian stories and just was like, well, you're my Chickasaw pianist kid. You're going to write the score like any choreographer would think. And I was like, you're out of your mind. I can't write <laughs> ballet. And she's like, you grew up in this. What are you talking? And so, I mean, we ha we actually kind of had a, an argument about it. I was <laughs> like, and I was, I mean, but she, it really just, I think the reason is because she tapped into something that really was overwhelming in a very positive way. And I just didn't know how to metabolize it in the moment. So I, I went back to practicing Brahms and Prokofiev and, and I, but I couldn't get it out of my head. So I started writing and I came to her with the material. And I was like, I, I think I'm doing this. And she said, and I played it for her and she really liked the material. So my first commission was from my Irish mother, um, a score about American Indians um, for ballet. And so that was my foray into composing. And it just completely changed my world. Basically, my mom, in a really beautiful and innocent way, asked me to be my entire self. A right. classical musician and a Chickasaw man all at the same time. And it was like, well, there it is. And of course, that's what I was around. Tchaikovsky's Russian to the core in every possible way. And, you know, all it's like you got all these and all these Russian folk tales and all these ballets. I mean, that's like, there it is. Bartok is a really great example. Debussy is a great example. Toru you know, it's like Chinnery Ung. And of course, our American composers like Samuel Barber and George Crumb and Charles Ives and Henry Cowell. These are very ethnically and nationally identified composers. I mean, they're, they're, they, they know who they are. And so, and that's how they wrote. And so there it is. It was done in history. And so here I was given this opportunity to express American Indian identity in the classical fine arts and music. And symphonic music. And so um, I embraced that just like I do when I was a pianist. I was like, when I started piano, I was like, I took it very seriously and I was in. And when I started I, I composing, I, I went back to the, the Cleveland Institute and add, added composition to my degree. And I then announced to my family that I was to be a Chickasaw classical composer. And I had had tremendous support from both the classical and native communities when I'd written the, the ballet was called Winter Moons. Uh, it's actually on my YouTube website. If anybody wants to watch it and listen to it, they can watch it on YouTube. Um, and um, I was, I was, I gotten all that support, and people were like, "You got to do this." And I was like, "I don't know. I got to really think about this." But I, after thinking about it a while, I made my decision, and so that's what I do. So the reason I'm saying all this is because this opera is is it's kind of a, a, a current culmination of all that. It's a, an opera about one of our very very important Chickasaw legends of how we acquired our shells for our shell-shaking percussion. Our percussion is, is turtle rattles. That's our main percussion sound. And there's a whole beautiful story that goes with this, a very typical, archetypical hero's journey that, you know, that Joseph Campbell would have articulated. And it's just, a, and it's very important. And it's also sung entirely in the Chickasaw language. So um, this is a very important to me to bring that to the concert stage for the world to hear our language in opera. So 
our speakers can understand every single word and follow the story as it is. And then the subtitles are there and everybody else can enjoy it. And then I, I love... I love expressing legends. I like things that are universal that that everybody can go in and get in just like you're watching Star Wars. Mm -hmm. Everybody can watch and go relate to that journey, that that human development and discovery, that kind of thing. I love legends from the world. I love the fact that humans have stories. It's critical that we have stories because we're expressing what it means to be us and to mm -hmm. be alive and to be experiencing life on this planet. So those kinds of, to be able to express legends like that to me is very, very fulfilling. This this sounds like it's going to be a really, really exciting opera. Um, I hope so. I, I, yeah. We'll see. <laughs> you know, the judges will have their time. It's like, it's like, so I'm, I'm doing the, obviously I'm doing the best I can and I'm very critical. I've got these, I've got Tchaikovsky on my shoulders, you know, yeah. oh, hey, but hey, buddy. <laughs> How you doing? <laughs> well, I think I think we can make the argument too that he has your back. I, I hope you want, <laughs> as long as I'm as long as I'm you know applying myself with the highest integrity possible. Yes. Mm -hmm. so. <laughs> well, you, well, you definitely are, undoubtedly. Um, I mean, it's it's cool to hear how how like I, I like the story about your mom commissioning your first piece and and uh, and and kind of like being the impetus behind you composing and and um taking on your your identity and everything like that of like it makes me think about takamitsu because i think in the early part of his career wasn't he rejecting his japanese heritage or something like that and then and then like someone i think i don't remember who it was but i feel like someone was like dude you you should embrace Embrace your, yourself. Yeah, I think that's I think that's a very uh, common experience with anybody who's really thinking about who they are. Right, it's part of the process. I think is to kind of reject who you are because you got it's got to it's got to be authentic, and you got to come back to it on your own terms in a way that you're being authentic. I guess is the best way I can say it. Uh, so he came back in a very authentic, over, an amazingly authentic way, in a very genuine way, and his music is just undeniably Japanese. It's Japanese symphonic music. It's just unbelievable. Mm -hmm. You know, and you can absolutely draw parallels of certain impressionistic influences, you know, from history. Of course you can. Mm -hmm. That's because we, I mean, everybody has our, you know, I'm, I'm influenced by everything I'm looking at in my room or whatever, when I go outside and I look at anything or any sounds that I hear. I mean, I'm influenced by Peter Gabriel. You know, I'm influenced by different pop musicians and I grew up with, I'm listening to John Coltrane, you know, I mean, it's like I, there, there are things about these artists that resonate with me as well. So he has all this influence, but he just had to come back to it on his own terms so that he felt very genuine about it. Right. So I totally respect that. There's a look, I mean, if you take Bartok, for instance, Bartok in the classical world is known as a totally Hungarian person who really codified a Hungarian sound, you know, but his first work sounded exactly like Franz Liszt, exactly mm. like him. And so he, and that's, I mean, it's another way of saying he had to work in this way first before he got to here. It was part of his process. And so I wouldn't, I'm not going to necessarily listen to what's that first piano work for a piano and orchestra that he wrote. I thought it was Liszt. I thought it was somebody trying to imitate Liszt. And it was, it was Bartok imitating Liszt. But Liszt was another Hungarian, you know, person right. who was his hero. And so he was going to model that. So another version of that is somebody rejecting that as well. It's just part of that process of how you're working with who's come before you and what, you know, what's all that information that's, that you're born into. We have to manage that and and, re, and rework it for ourselves so that we do it and we come back to it in an authentic way. 
I think I think this kind of goes into what you're saying about how you love stories of legends. Mm-hmm. And like this is sort of in a way that story of of what a coming to age story almost, it right? Is. Yeah, look, his own process of becoming an artist was kind of a hero's journey. You know, he had to send himself out onto another planet and discover and find out what that's like and then come back or whatever it was he needed to do. He could have stayed on that planet. Mm-hmm. But either way, you're right. It's a personal discovery. It's it's always personal development and personal discovery. It, it, well, um, I'm curious because you had mentioned um, with the opera that it's it's entirely in, in spoken in Chickasaw. Is there is there a name for the Chickasaw language at all? Like like how you like how you like how in America we say English, right? So like. Oh, so for Shell Shaker, oh, I'm sorry, I don't remember the, what the translation is. I I speak the language, but I'm not fluent, and I got to be honest with you, I totally forgot <laughs> what the title is in, in Chickasaw. Uh, okay, okay. Um, what what sort of things about the language uh, could you could you kind of divulge in, like um, mm-hmm. um, like what aspects of it are should listeners be aware of or something? I mean. Mm-hmm. I'm not entirely sure how to ask that. I'm, I'm kind of thinking about how in Hawaii, there's like what twelve letters in their alphabet or something, and and there's a lot of A's. I know, like A A happens a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I see what you're saying. Well, I mean, okay, okay. So, well, first of all, let me fill in some blanks here on, on the process of the libretto. Uh, this is something I do because, like I said, I'm not fluent. So um, what I do is I partner with um, uh, Josh Hinson, who is our our he leads our Chickasaw language division for our tribe. And Josh is an adult speaker, meaning he learned he became fluent as an adult himself. So, which makes him also a little bit modern in his thinking. Not it's not better or worse. It's just he's a modern he's modernly learned speaker, basically. So he what I'm the reason I'm saying this is he feels comfortable stretching the language a little bit for the projects that I'm doing. So I create librettos in English, and then we work together on the interpretation and the translation. So Josh is a very very critical component of this because he's also making it to where our elders who speak it will be like, okay, I get what you're doing there and that's cool. And then it's also, you know, so he's, he's just, we're, 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 we're a a team on these things and he's critical to this process. So there's that going on. So that, that helps. I do that with other tribes as well. So I, I, I work, excuse me, I compose works in other tribal languages that I don't even know how to approach. So I will be in contact with community members who are comfortable with translating as well and then I create works in other languages as well. So I'm a I'm a liaison on the languages, if that makes sense. Right. And I do that with Chickasaw and many other tribal languages. I love it because it's actually how it gets learned. So now I can actually read more other tribes' languages, and I know my language better through my own composing. So and now my son speaks it more than I ever did as a kid. So it's been like this interesting like funnel with my hidden agenda of like, well, this is a really good way for me to really learn my language even better. You know, so, but also knowing my limitations. So that's why I partner with Josh so heavily. It's like, he's, I mean, he's the guy. And so anyway, and we, we have a, I just love my relationship with him. It's just so much fun. And so, and we're just buddies. We're brothers, man. It's, it's great. So anyway, that's, um, that's how that all kind of comes together. So now in terms of, of listening to the language as a non-Chickasaw speaker, it's like listening to any other language that you're not necessarily familiar with. People will pick up that we do absolutely have consonances and vowels that are more common. So the CH consonant is all over the language. 
A's are all over the, like Oz are also all over the place. And so there, there is a, a predominance of, of, of uh, certain consonances and vowels, yes, that you will discover. And some people will probably zero in on more on certain aspects of it than others. Um, and so, and we do have fewer um, letters also as well. First of all, all of our vowels are just one sound. We don't have long and short versions of the vowels. So A's are all ah, right? O's are all o. I's are all like E, kind of like a double E. You know, this Y's are very similar to that. I mean, so so we only have one version of each vowel. And then we also don't have like Z or X or J. So we're missing, like we don't have as many of, and then we're talking, I say missing in compared to the English language. And and so one thing that's, that's, uh, that's helpful in terms of reading it, and that is a lot of American Indian languages were translated by English speakers mm -hmm. first. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the phonetics are English based and then adjusted basically, like if you look at the international phonetics you know, guides. Well, a lot of that refinement has come into our current dictionaries and where we're actually constantly refining our own languages in terms of how it's printed. So that's still a bit of an evolutionary process. And, and um, some tribes are getting really, really super into the weeds about like really tiny minor adjustments as they consult with more of the older speakers, that kind of thing. This is a, this is a whole topic that's just beautiful, this whole linguistic topic that's, that's going on with many, many tribes. And so I just happen to be very, very fortunate to be in touch with some of the folks in my own tribe that are just really on the forefront of all of this. And so I'm, I'm connected. This is my very unique way of being connected with my own language. That's so fascinating. I mean, because yeah, you're, you're, you're bringing to that conversation, <laughs> pun intended conversation, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> the, the artistic aspect of this thing that they're trying to, to, to tie down with, like, like you said, they're the, the, the linguists and everyone are, are, speaking with the elders to try to make sure the proper pronunciation of things. And you're, you're the person who comes in and says like, okay, well, let me make that entertaining. Here's some, here's an opera, you know, like, <laughs> not that it's not entertaining, but there's a different form of uh, excitement, you know, with. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, I'm coming in at, you know, from two angles again, it's like, I'm coming in as a Chickasaw man and as a classical composer. Right. So my desire is to express it how I am. This is me. And so I'm going to express my cultural identity in, in the Jared way. Um, and then another Chickasaw artist will express it in their way. And it's going to be, a, it's going to be a different set of, um, solutions. Sure. Yeah, exactly. Oh, it's, it's so, it's so cool to kind of, uh, to see how differently people, even within the same group might like interpret whatever it is in their own way. Right. Cause we're all, uh, you know, at the most basic level, we're all different we're individuals. Right. And so we have a way of processing things and thinking about it. And like, even in the same family, my sister and I are very different in many ways, you know? <laughs> yes. You know that, I think that's a really important topic because I mean, you know, we've got 8 billion people in the world, uh -huh. which means there's 8 billion different ways to be a person. And everybody that is alive is literally their own universe, their own beautiful universe of experience and perspective with an incredibly colorful story every sure. single person on this planet and so that that and that becomes overwhelming to think about how much diversity there is like that and then that happens on a macro level like that and also on a micro level <laughs> siblings i have four siblings in my family we're all radically different and very monolithic 
because we're from the same family. So Indian country is very similar. It's like, so within all the different tribes around North America, we can feel monolithic uh, in purpose in many, many ways. And then we go back to also being very, very diverse. And so it's very fluid how we mm. go back and forth. Within a tribe, it's the same thing. We're very monolithic as a tribe. And then we've got very diverse families with very diverse experiences. And I think that's really important for to, for, to remind us that we flow in and out of those two feelings of feeling you know unified and then also very diverse within every community that we're within. within. My aunt and my dad's sister told me one time, she goes, well, you know, Jerry, there's just as many ways to be an Indian as there are Indians. And I just, that was really beautiful. And she was saying that because I was struggling with like, what am I doing? What does my voice mean and everything like that? And she said that at a really critical time. And it was a, it was helpful to me, not just for myself, but also how I look at my own Indian colleagues yeah. you know, and cousins from other tribes. And now I see it as a tapestry of beauty that we all have our own different native experience that brings beauty to the full tapestry of the whole experience. I love that. And I, I love hearing about other natives and their experience and why they are where they are and what I just I just think it's fabulous. It's really really quite a journey to hear all of the different stories from my cousin tribes and from my own community members. Oh, that's powerful. Wow. I love that your aunt. Wow, she's she's like she's like Yoda, you know? Like <laughs> she, she really is my personal Yoda. <laughs> I'm gonna tell her you so that she's gonna think that's great. <laughs> By all means, I I mean I got so much from that just from you saying it, you know. So, <laughs> but it's it's a great perspective though. I mean, it's it's important, you know. Like and even the way you worded it when you said um, there's eight. 8 billion people in the world that means there's 8 billion different ways to be a person mm -hmm. oh my god i want to like stamp that onto my wall or something or like you know just wake up every day and look at that and be like that's right yeah. i'm gonna be me you know it's a fact yeah <laughs> so and it, yeah we're, we're gonna have our own solutions that means and you know also this is something i like to talk to my kid about is that what it means is that we all have our unique combination of superpowers so there it is you know and if and and I think I think the way I like the the reason I like to think of it like that is because oftentimes we can end up comparing ourselves, judging ourselves based on somebody else's superpower or something like that. You know, it's like we're the comparisons can be we're very unfair to ourselves on that front. And so, uh, if we can see that you know everybody's got their own set of superpowers, I think it's really really important. Right, that's so true. Also, sometimes we don't choose them. It's like sometimes they're just there and it's like, well, am I going to embrace this or am I not going to? And that's part of our personal journey. Toru Takamitsu, he had this superpower of being Japanese. So what did he do to reconcile that? He rejected it for a while. And then, you know, then he didn't. But that was, you know, it was lying right there. It's like, well, here's one of your superpowers, dude. What are you going to do with it, man? <laughs> you know, and again, it's like we're, we're, we don't always choose those. Yeah. I, I hope sooner or later someone hears this and makes a comic book about the superhero Takamitsu. Yeah. <laughs> the rejection of your Japanese, you know, background only yeah. enhanced the power of it. Yeah, it actually did. You know, it's I'll get it's reminding me. There's a there's a comic book made by uh, Aragon Star, um, and, and she she made a comic book called Super Indian, mm -hmm. and my son loves that. It's like, <laughs> yeah, and it's like it's got all these different characters, you know, and they have all got their little quirky things, and it's really really fun. And I love it for for native kids to read because it's like here, look at all this diversity. 
you know, within just a small group of superheroes, you know, they're in Indian country and it's, but I just love it. Super Indian. And he just loves that. And he's got long hair and like the Superman outfit. It's like, yeah, it's like, yeah. But it, but if we can kind of help ourselves think, you know, think like, yeah, I'm empowered with this stuff. This is stuff that's like, these are superpowers, you know, and what can I do with this? That's unique to, you know, from somebody else. Or I think that's a, that's a cool way to look at it. Mm -hmm. I, I agree. I like that. I mean, it's something that I, I, uh, I've realized like with my friends and stuff, the things I admire about them are usually things that I don't think I have. Mm -hmm. And I have, uh, one of my, one of my closest friends who I've known since I was like, I don't know, 11 or 12. Um, he has this unbelievable ability to just sit down with any random person and have a, a very honest and like enjoyable conversation where within the first 15 minutes of it, they're pals. Yeah. <laughs> like I can't even tell you the amount of times we've gone out to a bar. He yeah. sits next to some random person. And the thing is too, he has no reservations either. He'll say, he'll say whatever. Yeah. Controversial or otherwise, yeah. but it, it doesn't affect the, uh, uh, the quality or anything of the conversation. Like it doesn't, the mood doesn't become yeah. sour, you know? Hey boy, we could all learn from that. I, I mean, what a superpower it's like, what it sounds to me like he's really comfortable in his own skin. Mm hmm and and then is able to be very authentic and connect very authentically with people. I and I think that's just terrific. What a lesson to learn. I mean, I want to be around something like that because I can be like, you know, I could. It's really I like that. Yeah, I could pick up on some of that, you know. But that's that's what I mean, what a talent. What a yeah, gift. <laughs> yeah. And that's what comes to my mind when I hear you talking about you know like making uh, a really cool point about the superpowers that all of us have. Yeah. You know, I think about the things that my friends have and. And, uh, and, you know, and then you also kind of default, well, not default, but you might go to like, well, what, what are my weaknesses? Where's my kryptonite? You know, like <laughs> well, and, and, you know, the, and again, it's like being, being brave enough to be like, that's cool that I have this weakness. I do not have absolute pitch. Uh -huh. And in fact, I mean, my, my relative can be challenged. I have a very weird sense of pitch. If I'm guessing pitches, I'm almost always a fourth or a fifth away. Right. Correct answer. Almost exactly the furthest away I could possibly be. I'm never a triton away. I'm always a fourth or a fifth away. <laughs> right. But it actually informs a lot of how I orchestrate because I hear things a very certain way. And I'll tell you, when I was in college, I felt really weak in many, many ways because, oh my gosh, you want to talk about the time that we're over comparing ourselves to detriment with each other, you know, I mean, oh, that's just, that's, and that's normal. It's part of our process to do that. But over time I, I became, I learned to realize it's like, no, I hear things this way and I can either lean into this or not. And I mean, to describe it would be kind of difficult, but I've gotten to know how I hear things in my own Jared way. And to just lean into that, it's my reality. I'm just like, you know, so I'm going to do it. I also notice other orchestrations and I'm critical because of how I hear things. And so that's also a normal process is to be critical. I'm critically, I'm critically analyzing also all the time. So, you know, as long as I don't let it just destroy my life, like, man, that music is not what I think. So I'm going to ruin my day. I mean, I'm not like that, but I do, I go into every single movie. I'm listening to the score and I'm critically analyzing exactly what's going on. But that's also just part that's normal for being a composer. Cause I'm doing that to myself when I'm writing. So I'm doing it all the time. So I'm constantly in my, I'm sure chefs do the same thing. I can't, I can't imagine what it's like to eat in this world as an expert chef. Right. I mean, <laughs> 
right <laughs> got to have some times of total misery <laughs> because you know how do you turn you know it's like they're 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 naturally critically analyzing food constantly yes in many many different ways on value on nutritional value on preparation on presentation on te- every possible thing you can bring out in food they're they're in tune with Mm-hmm. You know, so, so over time that just, you know, so, but, but again, it's like over time, it's like, okay, those that I am now a product of my weaknesses and my strengths. And so how, how do I do that? And sometimes I will pick a weakness and go, I've got to work on this. I w- or I want to, it's now important to me that I work on this. One, one weakness I had when I was uh, younger was writing. I couldn't communicate a thing in writing. And then I had to apply for grants. Well, suddenly <laughs> it became important <laughs> to articulate myself. And fortunately, my mom taught me how to write grants at a very early age. And so I was I was doing this very early, like making proposals, actually. It was Proposalville, and it became important. And now I am very critical about how people's proposals look or how they're articulating. And, well, you know, 30 years ago, I couldn't have done that to save my life. So here's, here's something, and now it's become a superpower because it became important to me. So just, I mean, you know, I don't know, I'm just kind of going off on tangents about this, but just over time, I've tried to see there's weaknesses, there are strengths, the, you know, and how do I manage this stew that I've been dealt in my life? And, you know, how, how do I manage that? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I like your comparison to chefs and, yeah. and how like turning that off as a chef. I mean, uh, yeah, uh, not, not, yeah. Well, I mean, cause as a composer, it's like, you hear all this music, you hear it in movies, you hear it in like, you're, yeah. you're at the dentist getting your tooth drilled and you hear whatever's in the background, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you're thinking about what's being played as somebody's drilling into your tooth. Yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> You can think about architects who go into a dentist's office and they're thinking about the architectural right. integrity of the building as they're getting their tooth drilled. Same thing. Or somebody who's in textiles and they're looking at the vinyl seat cover and they're like looking at the, the, all the different textiles around, you know, and how everything is made. It's like, oh, that veneer is like not a great. Right, right. Yeah. Everybody does it. It's, it's some, everybody's got a world playing out, you know, in their in their mind. And it's just, that's how we interpret, interpret everything around us. It's so true. It's so true. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. It, like, and you said that earlier too, like sometimes you have to, or like with people with perfect pitch, about how they have to make themselves turn it off. And it's hard yeah. to do that sometimes, you know, yeah. it's, it's, it's not always, it's not always a blessing, mm-hmm. but it depends. And then they, so they're managing things too. So it's like, so to covet somebody else's, you know, circumstance is not, not necessarily a really great solution for anybody because they've got stuff that they're trying to deal with as well. And it's like, you know, so, you know, just, I, I, I will maintain, you know, my lawn and be like, you know what, I, I've, been, I've been given enough. I'm good. I'll, I'll work with it. <laughs> I think that's a fair point. Um, so we, we, we're at like an hour now. Oh, okay. Um, we can talk for a little bit longer if you want to. That's fine. Well, I wanted to see, is there anything, what, what things do you want to touch upon that we haven't even gotten close to? Or, or, or is there something you wish that I had asked you or any interviewer had asked you that you've never been asked? Well, I, I think I'll tell you, I do like to address kind of like, um, this is, um, uh, I like to talk about the biz, like making a living and stuff like that. And just, you know, addressing that. And, you know, we've talked about our mutual friend, Garrett Hope. And I, I, I speak about that man very openly because um, he came across my life at a time that was, it was just perfect timing. 
Okay, so for instance, I've been a freelance musician my entire life. I learned a lot of ropes from my mother, which was really, really critical, but also from my father and Indian country. There's, and I could get into exactly why, but the point is, is that I've thought like a freelancer for a very long time. And, you know, um, and then discovering Garrett's, you know, the portfolio composer was really important to me. I now heavily require this whenever I talk to college students I'm like you must start listening to this because you've got to listen to all these other composers experience you've got to hear these stories of other people it's gonna so it's like it's like confetti every time you have a conversation with somebody it, it's like they're throwing confetti into your life and it, and it falls onto the ground and it doesn't necessarily make sense because you're like okay there's all these little points okay well that's fine well the next conversation you have is like this it's another thing of confetti and then it falls in it's like and these start to fill in right? It's like, oh, I remember that. Yeah, that was really important. But how does that relate here? Well, over time, the more information you build, it fills in a full picture and, you know, a pointillistic picture, obviously, if it's, if it's confetti. But, but all I'm saying is like that, that culmin all these coals that are kind of coming together to build your fire is it's, it's a culmination of information. So it's really critical. And so Garrett has provided this incredible library of conversation of everybody else's experience. This is one of the reasons why I'm like, 8 billion people, 8 billion unique experiences. The more you listen to stories, you're like, that was unique. That mm -hmm. was unique. How many? Oh, my gosh. And then we pull like, oh, thank you. I needed this. Oh, and I needed this. So this this type of approach to life, I think, is really, really important. And so he's just created this environment that I think is really, really fabulous. So the reason I'm saying this is because I like to try to offer as much hope and positivity as I can to people who are being freelancers because... I believe every human alive is an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. I mean, and it doesn't matter if you've got a quote unquote nine to five or an institutional job, or if you're total like, you know, a stockbroker with multiple, you know, port, you know, like, you know, a portfolio of different, you know, things and that kind of, it doesn't matter. Everybody is trying to pay bills. Everybody is trying to feed themselves or their families, trying to take care of elders or children they're trying to manage you know their their sociology of their life everybody's in the same boat every human being alive is an entrepreneur of their own life and they're trying to make their life work mm. and so i say that because if if we look at the music career as this stereotypical starving artist thing it's really detrimental because look I graduate with a degree in law. That doesn't guarantee me a multi-million dollar law, you know, practice. I mean, I don't walk out of school and here's a whole law building waiting for me, you know. So th those stereotypes of like, you know, what are the most lucrative jobs, just those stereotypes are all untrue. It really depends on how you apply yourself. And so if you decide that you want to be an artist of any kind, well, that's just as legitimate as anybody else. Or if you want to own... If you want to be a Freemason or own a lawn, lawn business or a, a restaurant manager, or if you want to be a genetic engineer, you've got the same types of human problem solving issues going on. It doesn't mm -hmm. matter who you are. Elon Musk was a really good example of that he made a really important point when he was like, I don't care if you've got a degree. I just want to know if you can build rockets. Well, right. that's true. I mean, when we look at, at, you know, mission control at SpaceX, many of those engineers that are running those learned everything they needed to learn by the time they were 15 off of YouTube. And the reason I say that is because it just opens up our thinking to like, hey, there's lots of ways 
to skin a cat. There really, really is. And so everybody's going to have their own experience. And so I, I like to talk about that because I like to try to encourage people. You've got it in you. And the challenge is, what's your, again, what are your strengths and weaknesses? How are you going to pull that together just like this other person is working out for themselves? And so I don't think that one circumstance is necessarily better or worse than the other. It's just different. Mm. And so if we can, if we can have hope, you know, and, 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 uh, positivity behind that, we can encourage ourselves and be like, you know what, I'm today, I'm going to solve this problem. And if I solve that one, I can solve this next one tomorrow. Oh, wait, what if I solve that one problem by nine o'clock in the morning? Oh, well then there's all these other ones I can just go right into. So if we just kind of have that kind of, I guess, again, positive mindset for ourselves and allow ourselves to, you know, to be that, to be like that, I think it's really helpful. So I, I like to kind of give that message to folks in general and especially because i know we're kind of channeling on with musicians but we all do have our superpowers i wasn't the best sight reader when i was in college i'm still not the best sight reader well that's not my superpower so that's not where i'm applying myself okay? right so but at the same time i grew up with this great knowledge of theater oh wow well how did that play i didn't expect that that was going to happen here well okay now it is and i mean i've done this i mean like i've, I've played for broadway i toured broadway i didn't know i was going to do that well i grabbed it and went with it it was like look at all this beautiful and then i left it on purpose because i knew that wasn't my thing so all you know just there's going to be lots of opportunities that come along and if we just you know grab them and look at that as part of our you know our total person then you know it's going to come together but if if we have a, a, an attitude of positivity and opportunity and prosperity in our lives that really really helps all those doors open and we don't feel so isolated or helpless or alone we're part of many many folks doing the exact same thing right yeah wow so so pointed and like and so many aspects about that i feel like you just covered a, a crash course in entrepreneurship <laughs> with like perspective and uh uh tackling challenges and 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 you know taking opportunities whether it's something that you directly want to do and then realize oh wait like you said with the the uh the the theater stuff you know, you know if this if this is helpful this also very much applies to my history on my Chickasaw side of my family. And so as everybody knows, you know, native history is, is extremely complicated and very volatile. And we've gone through a lot of change. Change mm -hmm. is the word. I mean, just for centuries, literally centuries, we've gone through change that we've managed for ourselves. And managing is like the, another big word. We've managed it. We've, we've figured out how to thrive and survive through all the enormous amount of change. So that's in our wheelhouse. That's our history. That's part of our identity. And, you know, my ancestors, you know, walked 800 miles in mud so that I could fly over the same distance in an hour on an airplane. And so I try to remember that and like, you know, my, my great, great, great grandparents were problem solving like crazy to make sure that, that, that I was alive, that I could prosper. And so I, I find encouragement in my past of going, you know what? wasn't so great back then and I'll look at all these things that I have because my ancestors worked in this fashion and problem solved and you know what every human alive is in the same circumstance our ancestors didn't have it as as good as we do now 500 years ago I mean there's like we, we didn't have cell phones and computers and stuff and you know agriculture the way that we do now I mean there's I mean there's so many things and so I, I try to look at that as a both in a micro and a macro level but I, I find an enormous amount of inspiration from my ancestors history of well of survival in indian country and they were problem solving the same way and i mean they they were also problem solving with whoa with conditions i can't even fathom it's it's crazy to think about like it's it's also really interesting hearing you talk about it in this way because like i think 
in a very similar fashion. Mm -hmm. uh, a, a piece I wrote a year ago, which I'm still actually like working through, I titled it. It's it's a pretty it's a pretty intense title. It's um, you're here because someone won a fight with a rock. <laughs> <laughs> and it's but like it's what you're saying like sometime long ago someone had to get to the point where they they had to literally battle someone and because they won that battle that allowed you or me or who, you know all of us today you know like we can be sitting here right now having this conversation you know i have this heater at my feet right now you know and i have coffee and water yes and like even 150 years ago that might not have been as accessible to the majority of the people, right. if even, you know, mm -hmm. all of them. Right. So, well, I, I, you know, kind of a way to sum that up is, is, is it's embracing gratitude. Right. Exactly. And you know, the thing is, it's not a punishment. It's an empowerment to embrace that because you you're allowing yourself to feel good. It's like, okay, Hey, you know what? I could be stressed about what's missing or I can anchor myself to what I have. And that's going to allow me to build so much better. It really is. Yeah, yeah. What a what a great Jared. You bring such a great perspective to to everything, really, man. It's been <laughs> it's been amazing. I mean, the uh, the alarm has gone off, and okay. so um... <laughs> I have to go get my kid from school. So that's that's a good thing. It's okay. Yeah. <laughs> but before before we depart here, um, are there any projects you want to kind of let people know about, or how they can contact you, social media or otherwise? Absolutely. Well, first of all, um, uh, Jared Tate is my handle for all the social medias. So you can find me on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and LinkedIn and YouTube. And so that's easy. Also, my website is jaredtate.com. And I uh, purposely have, I mean, I've really intently used those as my billboard of announcements of like, this is what's coming up in the next few days. And then they're all archived there. So I've used that as a tool very intentfully like that. So that's where you can find it. And also I'm very accessible. You send me a message if you got a question about stuff. I do believe as I'm as I'm getting older to be available to folks um, in Indian country and in the classical world or just any part of the world, anything to talk about stuff. I, I think it's really important to be available and to be encouraging and supportive of folks who are working things out themselves. So, you know, and people do, they reach out to me all the time on social media and that's perfectly fine that, you know, I like the messaging there and everything. So I'm very comfortable with that. Um, so anyway, that's just something, you know, that I'm available to do and, and, um, uh, but also a lot of my music is on my YouTube channel and, and also my website. And also I post stuff on, on the socials all the time. So, so I'm, I'm, I'm there, I'm very accessible and I, I enjoy interaction with folks. Well, I can definitely attest to that. I mean, my, my first, you know, our interaction through email and stuff, it's been, I've been enjoying every bit of it. And also um, how you would add little uh, uh, Chickasaw, you know, you would, you would say something in Chickasaw then the translation for it. And I was like, I, I really like that a lot. That's so cool. And, um, but yeah, Jared, thank you so much. Uh, you've been like presenting a ray of positivity <laughs> in every aspect. You're it's, it's been an absolute pleasure. I really appreciate you being a part of this. Well, I, I appreciate this opportunity. Adam, you have a great day. We'll be in touch soon. Okay. Definitely. Yeah. Thank you.